So I called him at the studio, the Sunset Sound. He picks up the phone and he just says, I hear you don't like my album. This is Prince, the story of Sign of the Times, brought to you by The Current in collaboration with The Prince Estate, Paisley Park, and Warner Records. Hey, it's Andrea Swenson. That track you're hearing is called It Bees Like That Sometimes, and it's one of the many unreleased tracks from Prince's vault that are included on the new super deluxe reissue of Sign of the Times. Elements of it would end up in I Know, a song in his 1988 release, Love Sexy, but at the time it was recorded in October 1986, it was one of dozens of songs that Prince was tracking between the breakup of his hit-making band, The Revolution, and the completion of Sign of the Times. Years later, while writing the liner notes for his 1998 compilation of unreleased music, Crystal Ball, Prince would look back on this period. Writing about the track Good Love, he said, This track was recorded during an intense period of musical change for Prince. He had disbanded the revolution and moved to L.A., booking Sunset Sound Studios, sometimes for months at a time. Shockadelica, Feel You Up, and Parts of the Black Album were also recorded during this period. Prince was happy, he reflected, and very optimistic about his musical possibilities with a new lineup of musicians, which included Sheila E. By the time the news of the revolution's breakup was reported in the papers, Prince had already set up camp at Sunset Sound and was recording one or two songs a day. When they came back from tour, the 18-wheeler pulled up, and they brought all this stuff from the tour in and decorated the studio. This is engineer Coke Johnson, who worked closely with Prince at Sunset Sound. That's when the king-size bed showed up. Yes, a bed. And instead of uh, having a couch out there, he moved in a big old full king-size bed that had a big purple comforter on it because it sat high so he could sit on the edge of it and play his guitar. I think a lot of times he sat out there and and wrote in his little notebooks what he was feeling and what was going on in his life because everybody wanted a piece of him. And they all were pulling him here and pulling him there. And he had uh, lawyers and accountants and architects trying to, trying to get his approval on building Paisley Park. And I remember one day uh, one of the architects showed up and he had built a three-foot-by-three-foot piece of choroplast, and it was a mock-up of Paisley Park, down to the green window pyramids on the top, to a T with little trees in the yards, and all that stuff, trying to show Prince what, what the design concept was. And uh, I think Prince had told him, you know, what he wanted, and... The guy brought it into the room and we set it in the studio. And then he invited that guy to leave. No gratification. (laughs) I don't know if he ever told me good job. He expected perfection out of everybody he worked with. And because he expected that, that drove everybody to really put their all into it. This is the story of two childhood sweethearts. Inseparable. To one broke the other one's heart. 
she wants to leave him But I would die first Baby, don't leave me I didn't mean to hurt you By heaven, I swear Prosecution of a hiddenness love affair. I don't get nothing but always want you to be there. One of the songs Prince recorded during this period was a reworking of Witness for the Prosecution on October 6, 1986. Prince intended to give this new version to the country star Deborah Allen, and the next day he tracked another song for her, Telepathy, that she would ultimately release. As Prince went into overdrive creating new material in the studio, he would work such long hours that he needed a bench of engineers at the ready. In the fall of 1986, that often meant that Coke Johnson was trading off behind the board with Prince's primary engineer, Susan Rogers. He would work you into the ground. And so I, I could work with Prince and we could tag team you. A lot of times either she or I would be sleeping. There was a break room right across the hall with a couple of nice couches. And so we could take little cat naps in there. The studio was a deeply personal space for Prince. As Coker calls, not even Prince's bodyguard would be allowed in the actual recording room, which meant that Coke who Prince called Cuz, logged countless hours alone in the studio with Prince. So he always referred to me as Cuz, short for cousin. You know, if he wanted me in the studio, he'd come over to talk back and say, Cuz, Studio 3. He loved uh, Doritos. He loved famous Amos cookies, the little bags where they were always fresh. He liked Perrier water, and he liked Evian water. And we kept all of those in the break room. Casey wanted to take a break. And it was rare that he would drink much coffee. But uh, if we'd been recording for seven or eight hours and it was 10 o'clock at night, he'd say, Cud, give me a cup of coffee. And I'd say, really? Generally, it was with a little bit of cream and a sugar cube. And if he said two sugars, that meant you're going to be there for another four hours. Because he was such a purist that even a sugar buzz would get him wound up. With the revolution's breakup still fresh, Prince seemed to pivot in this period toward creating music for other people trying on different personas and personalities. In the span of just one week that October, he recorded songs for Deborah Allen, Jill Jones, and Joni Mitchell, who struggled to find herself in the lyrics for the song Prince penned for her, Emotional Pump. Last night I was lonely, not for anyone, not just for anyone. Last night I was feminine side of his songwriting, 
Prince also tapped into a piece of technology that could shift his voice into new registers. By mid-October, he'd become fascinated with recording in a voice that he would call Camille. He was writing so many songs and doing so much stuff that he got tired of his voice singing the solo on all the songs. So we, uh, we got a couple of special effects devices. Uh, one of them was called the Publison Infernal Machine, which is a pitch-changing device where he can sing in his normal voice and it'll come at it like on uh, Bob. You know that song? Okay. Let me see you dance. Bob, beat that up, bitch. He could actually sing in his normal register and we could transpose it down, or we could transpose it up. When he starts singing in his falsetto and his head tone, it was such a pure tone, there was nothing out on the radio that sounded anything like that. And I think he liked that. And then it was just trying to find the right song or the right vehicle to exploit that sound. And so we started collecting all those songs. He had six or seven of them that he had sung with that higher voice. And he didn't want to throw them away because they were good songs. So he, I think that's where he was putting together the Camille album. Although a test pressing was made, the Camille album was abandoned before it could ever be officially released. But its mere existence has become a fascination for Prince scholars and fans. With the release of the super deluxe edition of Sign of the Times, it's now possible to experience the full collection of Camille tracks, which started with Rebirth of the Flesh it's a brand new day. and included Housequake. Tell me who in this house know about the quake. I mean, really, really. Strange relationship. Feel You Up, which Prince released as a B-side to Party Man in 1989. Shockadelica, which was released as a B-side to If I Was Your Girlfriend, and references Camille. And you're so tired. Good Love, which was released on the 1988 Bright Lights Big City soundtrack. If I Was Your Girlfriend. And Rock Hard in a Funky Place, which would end up on the Black Album. Even the Black Album was an ephemeral creation in this period. A handful of those tracks were mixed together to soundtrack Sheila E.'s birthday party that December. I just assumed that those were for the party only. That those would never be released. 
because we spent a while mixing those things out. We made some tapes that would be slamming for Sheila E's birthday. He seemed really driven back in that particular three to four month period. He didn't have the revolution around. He was in the studio in his element doing what he enjoyed doing. And he was making himself happy, along with me. (laughs) I was very puzzled around that time. This is engineer Susan Rogers. I was puzzled because he wasn't talking about it. He wasn't showing it. There were big changes going on in his life. I knew how important the revolution was to him. Bobby was one of his oldest friends. And Wendy and Lisa, again, among his oldest, dearest friends. For him to lose his band, I knew that he was struggling, that there were, there were deep tensions there, and he would not. This frustrated me as a Prince fan. He would not write about it. He would not sing about it. He would not say anything about it. Because, in addition to all that, he had this tension going on with Susanna, because what's she supposed to do when her sister leaves and here she is? And I kept waiting for the songs. I mean, gee, if you ever wanted inspiration, there's a great way to be inspired. Your world kind of falling moderately apart. But Prince did not acknowledge weakness. When we were on tour, if he had a cold or the flu, he'd take that day quill and he'd hit the stage. He did not like making excuses. He did not like admitting any kind of a weakness. around this time, the tension was there in the room, but the music is generally pretty upbeat, like things like Play in the Sunshine and Housequake and even the dance stuff, you know, that we did, like uh, La Grind and Cindy C and this, this, this happy, joyful stuff. I can see it when I watch the movie, The Sign of the Times, from the concert that we did over in the Netherlands. Watching it recently after all these years, it gives me the impression of just manic, untethered joy. Like being really joyful, but without a reason to be. It's not tied to a birthday or Christmas or a a, a happy event like getting married. It's just joy for the sake of joy. And that's a little bit puzzling and a little bit troubling. But from that feeling, he got a, a masterpiece from it. To some extent, he plumbed the depths of what he was feeling, like with Sign of the Times and with the Cross and with Adore, with It. 
and to yeah. another uh, another set of songs, he's not touching it. He's not touching what he's feeling. It's music made from the neck up. It's purely cerebral, yet it's so damn good. <laughs> Most artists would be hard-pressed to pull that off. You have to be a true maestro to be able to be that good. That joy for the sake of joy may have seemed dissonant to those around Prince in that tumultuous era. But looking back at Prince's work all these years later, I think that's part of Sign of the Times' lasting appeal. It captured the full spectrum of the human experience, from reckoning with deeply personal disappointments and spiritual epiphanies to embracing resilience and joy. In other words, as Yale professor Daphne Brooks described in a previous episode, he was finding ways to celebrate the expansiveness and the limitless possibilities of Black artistic expression. As Daphne reminded me, the Camille persona was just another example of the ways that Prince pushed away boundaries. The technique that first picked my ears and still is the the detail that is most alluring to me and inspiring is the emergence of the Camille persona. And she or they, as our younger fans might call that character right now, they come to us initially through Housequake. The longer genealogy and thinking about a character like Camille is obviously through something like P-Funk, so central to Prince's DNA. And the fact that P-Funk was so revolutionary in playing with Afro-futuristic kinds of um, characters through technological calibrations of vocals clears a space for Prince to then actually design and inhabit an expansive, heterogeneous, polygender universe, right? So that's one particular example of how I think of Princess having taken kind of the building blocks of funk and pushed them to their limits in these ways that made really radical statements about, again, the malleability and gloriously constructed possibilities attached to identity performance. Before we go out, not that you're helpless, but sometimes, sometimes those are the things that being in love's about. By the end of November 1986, Prince had assembled what was to be his next artistic masterpiece, the 22-track triple album Crystal Ball. It included eight tracks from his abandoned Dream Factory album, which he'd primarily completed with the revolutions Wendy Melvoin and Lisa Coleman and his fiancée at the time, Susanna Melvoin, another seven tracks from the Camille Project, and another handful of songs he'd just completed that fall at Sunset Sound. Is that your door? Let me go. 
The track list was finalized on November 30th, 1986 and submitted to Warner Brothers Records. And if Prince had been in charge of the label, that three-disc set is the version we would have all heard in early 1987. But for the first time since the runaway success of Purple Rain, and with the dust still settling from his film Under the Cherry Moon's disappointing reception earlier that year, Warner Brothers pushed back. You're going to hear now from Lenny Warrenker, former record producer and record executive at Warner Records. His relationship with Prince started a decade before Sign of the Times. They met when Prince was in the process of signing to Warner Brothers in 1977. And Lenny remembers visiting Prince in the studio when he wanted to prove to the label at the tender age of 19 that he was capable of producing himself. We took him in the studio, and I really didn't want him to think he, he was auditioning. We just wanted to see what he did, you know. And um, he started with an acoustic guitar, got that down, put the drums on. And as he was putting the drums on, you could tell he had it covered. Because I was really concerned about not auditioning him, I said to him, after he finished putting the drums on, we, we can stop. And if you want, you can have the tape or whatever. And he looked at me. And it's one of the few things he said that day. But he said, no, I got to finish. And he was very firm about that. Firm enough to where I backed off and said, okay, okay, whatever. And we were in the um, control booth, which was very, very thin, especially with all those big 24-track tape machines. He was sort of sitting on the floor. And I was walking across the booth to talk to the engineer. And as I'm stepping over him, he looked up at me and he said, don't make me black. And uh, he then went on to say that he's competing with everyone and named artists from different genres, uh, different time. The Beatles, Sly and the Family Stone, Eric Clapton. I mean, it went on and on and on. And again, it was, it was jumping genres, which really made it interesting. It's like, what? Well, geez, <laughs> there's an enormous amount of ambition. And there's also the ambition to be great. That was a big thing for me. You know, it, it was like, you better get this guy and stay the hell out of his way for the most part. And for the most part, that's how Prince and Lenny's relationship played out. Executives from the label rarely visited Prince in the studio, and Prince would visit the Warner Brothers offices on his own terms to share his latest music with Lenny and his colleagues. But when Prince handed in his three-disc album, Crystal Ball, the label felt lukewarm about it. The first time that we stepped in, when the album came in, I listened to it and I realized I was having a very difficult time getting through it. Uh, part of that's just me. And the other part was that it felt long and felt like there were 20 songs. There were 22 songs in total. And so um, 
There was a meeting that took place in Bob Cavallo's office with Steve Farnoli, Bob and Joe, and Mo and myself. Bob Cavallo, Steve Farnoli, and Joe Ruffalo were Prince's management at the time. Mo Austin was the CEO of Warner Brothers Records. I got there a hair late, and I could hear what they were talking about, which was trying to get it down to one album. They were all worried, you know, about the size of the thing. And I listened for a while, and finally I just said, you guys, there's no way. There's no way that he's going to take three albums and condense it into one based on, on what, I've, what I've heard. I think the approach should really be, let's do a double album. He can get away with that easily. And it, it would make for a better album, I thought. And I gave them the reasons again, you know, the artistic reasons why it would be impossible, I thought, to uh, win that battle. And why battle? Why not present it in a way where you've, you were talking about what's best for the record? So um, they wanted me to talk to them about it. I thought, oh, God, here we go. You know, you know it's never easy with bad news or what he perceived as bad news. So I said, all right, but don't say anything to him. I'll pick my time and my place. I want to do it in a neutral place. So I um, went home, went out to dinner, came back. It was about 11 o'clock. Get a phone call from Steve Farnoli, who's you know one of the three managers. And Steve said, Prince wants to talk to you. And I said, Steve, did you tell him? He said, well, I had to. He knew there was a meeting. So um, I, I just, uh, all right. So I called him at the studio, the Sunset Sound. And I remember the woman who picked up the phone put me right through. In other words, Prince had told her I would be calling and make sure that this call gets in here. I called and got him immediately. He picks up the phone and he just says, this is the opening line. It wasn't hello or any of that stuff. It was, I hear you don't like my album, which was typical of him because he could challenge you. And I said, that's not true. I didn't say that. The thing I, I said is I think it could be a phenomenal album, but I think that it needs to be edited. I had just gotten back from a vacation in Hawaii, and I read this fabulous book about this book editor, Maxwell Perkins, who found F. Scott Fitzgerald, Ernest Hemingway, Thomas Wolfe, et cetera, et cetera. So I told Prince about this famous book publisher, and all he wanted to do was make sure that the books were as good as they could be and as tight as they could be. And I said, in, in in your case, there's no Max Perkins. You're that guy. You're going to edit it. I was just trying to get him to think about what's best for the record. He didn't say much. And then at the very end, um, he just said, you know what? I'm going home to Minneapolis and hung up. So I figured, oh, man, I blew it. The next morning, I went to the office and got two and our people who I really trust to sit with me and go through all the songs and see if we could edit it down or at least have our version uh, to have him respond to it. And I called Bob Cavallo, who was sort of the senior manager, 
and, and a longtime friend of mine, somebody I really respect. And I said, I know I'm going to have to go to Minneapolis to get this done, but we decided we would put the album together with what we thought were the stronger songs. And he said, what are you talking about? Fly to Minneapolis. He's been up all night editing the album. I like that you went the route of saying you are both the artist and the editor in this analogy. <laughs> yeah, it was the only way to do it. And by the way, it was the right way to do it. We're not as good as he is, you know. Years later, Prince would reflect on this exchange with Lenny and the label. In 1996, when his conflicts with Warner Brothers had reached a fever pitch, the artist said in an interview, I delivered three CDs for Sign of the Times because the people at Warner were tired. They came up with reasons why I should be tired, too. I don't know if it's their place to talk me into or out of things. In another interview that year, he added, These are the same people who would tell Mozart he writes too many notes, or that Citizen Kane is a long movie. I do remember that when he told me we've got to take it apart, the sequence that we had, he was angry. He was angry and disappointed. And he, at this point, was not used to not getting his way with the label. And I remember him huffing and puffing and being angry about the way some people act and the way some people think and the way some people behave and what kind of a world we're living in. And what they do for living, manage rock stars, boom, prince, let's get it with the hard voice, please. Who do I look like, baby? Yesterday's fool. And I did not know the context in which he was so angry. I, I didn't get involved in his business affairs or his personal affairs, for that matter. But I remember he was he was angry about that, and then eventually there was acceptance, and we moved on. And it was the it was the better choice. The double album was the better choice, but it it wasn't what he wanted, and this was one of the. It had been a long time since he hadn't gotten what he wanted. There is only one song on Sign of the Times that wasn't on Crystal Ball, and Prince recorded it at the 11th hour on December 21st, 1986, with Sheena Easton. I remember that we spent an extra long time on You Got the Look. Uh, originally, the song was a slower tempo, so we had the tape machine slowed down. It was going to be a slow, kind of deep, funky kind of thing. It was very clear that he was considering this to be a song like Pop Life or Wind Doves Cry. This was a major song to him on this record, perhaps a single, I don't know. But we spent a long time, uh, at least a full day, with it in that lower tempo, and he decided he didn't like it. Now, typically, if he decided he didn't like it, that's when a song tape would come off the machine. He'd finish it up, we'd make a mix of it, it'd come off the machine, and the tape would go straight into the vault. But in this case, he did something unusual. He just kept working on it. So we stripped down the whole top line. We very sped the tape machine to speed it up. Made it a whole different thing. Made it a, a pop thing. And that's why the drums sound so bright and high-pitched, high in tone. It's because we sped it up from their original tone. So as he's working on it, uh, he's 
friends with Sheena. They have a phone call. He invites her down to the studio, and she comes down, and I put up a mic, and he's written lyrics for her, and, and she sings. It was very quick, and she was a pro, just like he was. Her voice was always warmed up, and she did a great vocal part. Coming up next on Prince, the story of Sign of the Times. Prince assembles his new live band and prepares to introduce them to the world with a big European tour. You'll meet more of the musicians who Prince brought along for that ride, including the incomparable Cat Glover. I tried on a dress, came to Minneapolis, all of a sudden I see photographers and they dressed me like press. I, I didn't know what was going on. They just dressed me. Gave me his guitar and Prince said, play something. Prince, the story of Sign of the Times is produced by The Current, supported by the Minnesota Legacy Amendments Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, and created in collaboration with the Prince Estate and Warner Records and with their support. The story was written by me, Andrea Swenson. Anna Wegel is our producer. Thanks to technical director Corey Schreppel, digital producer Jay Gabler, radio production director Derek Stevens, and managing director David Sapphire. Thanks also to Trevor Guy, Giancarlo Siama, Michael Howe, and Dwayne Tudal. To learn more about The Current, visit thecurrent.org. If you haven't subscribed yet, search for Prince, the story of Sign of the Times on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, to learn more about Prince, visit prince.com. Smile.